Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So I'm going to encourage you to please open your pew Bibles, if you're near one, to page... 864. That's where our reading is today. And we are enjoying our trip through the Gospel of John. And every week in between Sundays, we are following along with a reading plan. You can get a bookmark here if you're just joining in now. And every week we're reading up through that Sunday's story. And so by the end of this series, we will have covered all of the Gospel of John. John tells us right out of the bat what it is that he is going to spend all of his writing time demonstrating to us. And that is that in the beginning for all of cosmic history and time, in the beginning was the word, the very revelation of God found in Christ Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He comes right out of the bat saying, this is what I want you to know, to experience. So we're diving into the stories that he has chosen to share because he wants us to see and feel and understand and believe that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's John 1.14. And so what we see as we are going through and hopefully reading even between Sundays in these stories is we see that John is picking out stories that he believes demonstrate this in the life of Jesus so that we could come to recognize what he has come to recognize by experiencing um, the stories around Jesus. And he starts with these stories early on that are Jesus turning water into wine. We saw that one, right? It was this picture of extravagance, abundance, and kingdom ethic, right? Because the first to find out about this amazing extravagance and overabundance are the servants at the wedding. They're the ones who know. The rest of the guests don't even know. And John says that this was the first sign. To John, these signs are not only miracles that bend the law of nature, but they are miracles that point to a greater truth about who Jesus is. So the first sign is this wedding at Cana. And then we go on and we see these stories where Jesus is um, demonstrating these divine knowledge, things that you could not normally know. For example, with that story, meeting the woman in Samaria at the well, and he speaks knowledge over her life history that he couldn't otherwise know. Sam covered that last week. And then in between the story of that encounter at the well. And this week, we also see that there was a miraculous healing of an official's son where Jesus isn't even present with the sick boy, but speaks a word and the child remotely is healed at the exact moment when Jesus says it. John says that's his second sign, a miracle that points to something bigger. And at that miracle, that official's entire household came to believe. What's interesting to me, I also am tracking along with our reading plan as we go. And what's interesting as we go through these stories is that we're seeing who's witnessing these things. Who is the ones who's starting to see these? We've got some servants at a wedding, a handful of Samaritans, which by the way, Jews avoided the area of Samaria. They would usually go around that region. So a handful of Samaritans in this random town have come to believe, a household in Galilee, and then We come to today's passage, starting in 5-1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem 
for one of the Jewish festivals. I sense in this story as we start here a significant escalation. We are going public this morning. That's what this story is doing. Something is shifting. We see that Jerusalem, we know, was the epicenter of Jewish temple life and worship. It's a large city that would bust at the seams during any festival time as people would come from the countryside into that hub of worship and life. So it was moments ago that we wrestled through that comment made by Jesus, woman, my time has not yet come, that he says to Mary. Remember that? That was only a couple weeks ago Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And today feels like go big or go home. Like, we are going to blow this thing out of the water. It's time. Feel that escalation. So the location in this encounter is a, is a pool in uh, Jerusalem called Bethesda. Now, this is actually a known spot. Archaeologists have uncovered this spot. And there's information about this spot outside of biblical accounts. We know historically that it had a reputation as being a site for healing. We know this in part. It actually was later that during Jesus' time, it probably was used with, as the beliefs that are stated in Scripture, that this could be a pool for healing, yes, but it may be for purification, for ritual purposes. But outside of Judaism, we actually know it was later dedicated by Romans to Asclepius, which I don't really know how to say that name, but it's a god of healing in the Roman culture. And so this, ha this pool has a reputation for healing outside of even what our biblical history says. We know that historically, this was a spot that had a reputation. And so here is why I asked you, well, I mean, it's good to read out of our actual Bibles. That's why I asked you to open. But those of you who actually opened to that page, why don't you look for chapter 5, verse 4? A little Bible trivia. Did you find it? Maybe in a footnote. And here's why. We actually have a verse that gets skipped. By the way, if you were really paying attention, I discovered I also skipped a verse but mine was an accident. So there's one verse in John that's not represented on our reading plan. I hope you read it anyway. That wasn't intentional. But this one is an intentional skip. Chapter 5, verse 4, was um, seen not in some of the original manuscripts, but was added later. And I think probably as somebody trying to explain to later readers, what's the deal with this pool? And so we see in your footnote for verse 4 that there was a belief that um, the waters would stir. Maybe it was a natural spring or something. But the belief, the cultural belief was that if you were first to the pool when the waters stirred, that you would be the one to gain access to the healing powers of this pool that had a clear reputation. And at this pool is a man who has been lame for 38 years. He has no one to help him get there when the waters stir up. He can't do it himself and he has no one else. Notice this as well. He doesn't approach Jesus and ask for anything. He hasn't been on the lookout for him. The word they used here that Jesus learned that he had been sick for, or lame for 38 years would actually maybe better be translated as uh, that Jesus knew. The, the, the point is there, there's a sense, again, of divine knowledge, knowledge that would not otherwise be known, that Jesus has access to. He knows of the condition. He approaches this man who has not been seeking after him, and he asks him, do you want to get well? Now, it's important to note 
that I do not believe there's any suggestion here that Jesus is saying, don't you want to get well? Like a judgment, like you're not trying very hard. That wouldn't be congruent with Jesus's knowledge that he has been unable to move himself for 38 years. He knows that the man can't do it. And there's no one there helping him. One of my commentaries actually says that the fact that there's no one helping him in that culture is an indictment against that society. In that culture of care for one another and family and community, the fact that no one's helping this man is an indictment not on the man, but on his community. So the question is not meant to be an indictment to the man. It is Jesus approaching someone who has done nothing to seek him out. Jesus is approaching him, and Jesus is initiating the conversation, drawing in a man who is meant to look to us as the epitome of helplessness. I can't do it myself, and I don't have anyone else, and it's been a really long time. I want you to stop and think, where were you 38 years ago? And I recognize in this community, a lot of you will say not born yet. But some of us can say, like 38 years ago, I was in Mr. Bell's fifth grade classroom being the epitome of awkwardness. Take all of my life from that time to now. Feel 38 years. Feel it a little bit. That's how long this person has felt the helplessness of his condition, perhaps more than your entire life. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? Interestingly, the man doesn't even say yes. He just responds with the state of his situation. He's showing the utter helplessness he has. I can't get there. No one can help me. This is it. He just states his truth. He doesn't even say, yeah, I really do. So we're meant to see, and that escalates. His response escalates the utter helplessness that is met in this moment with complete and total restoration. New life, new creation, creation entering right into the midst of his helplessness. And I would say his hopelessness as well. His answer states, like, I actually don't even have any hope. No one can get me to my last hope, which is bubbling water. That's where I'm at in life. I can't even get there. Helplessness, hopelessness, and into that, Jesus says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Again, with a word, no physical touch or move or anything. With a word again, Jesus completely heals him. The man gets up and he walks. This I have to pause in. Have you ever had your legs so fast asleep? This is such a lame analogy, forgive me, but like you're nervous to even stand on it because you think you could totally fall when you stand up. Like what did this man feel that gave him the confidence after 38 years to try his legs? I think this is an amazing moment. I just wonder about that. The faith to even try in the response to words of a stranger, we have no reason to believe he has any idea who Jesus is. He hasn't sought him out. He doesn't demonstrate faith, bless you, or hope or anything in who this man Jesus is. He just believes and has faith after the fact, and he does it. He gets up. We see in this word, this command, that he, Jesus, has the power to make change where neither human help nor sincere desire or unreliable water system stirring, none of that could do 
anything, but the word of Jesus goes right through all of where faith or desire or willpower lacks. Right there, Jesus' words have the power to heal the one who cannot help himself. And I think we're supposed to see that stark difference here. We're meant to pause and say, who else can speak life out of nothing? God's self. Only one who can speak life into nothingness with a word. This is going to ruffles feathers. And I think Jesus is fully counting on that. Because not only is that healing, that complete restoration, that's great. But Jesus does it on the Sabbath. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But just for now, just as a reminder or as uh, information for somebody who might be newer to church, Sabbath is a central part of Jewish identity as the people of God. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the top ten big ones, Sabbath was on there. Over time, the Jews were learning how to honor these laws, and they added to them in ways that were built. The, uh, the, the Mishnah was built to help people. They were like guardrails and support structures to say, how do we do this faithful living? And they would add laws to help people know. An example might be if I'm a homemaker and I want to be faithful to the law, I might say like, okay, so I'm not supposed to cook, but can I reheat yesterday's soup? And that may seem simple to us, but there were laws written to identify is reheating within the law or not. It was meant to help us to live into faithfulness. So we see in verse 10 that the law surrounding Sabbath prohibited carrying your mat. And we might look at that and be like, really? That's just like kindness to clean up after yourself. Is he supposed to leave it there and assume someone else is going to get it? Like it doesn't work for us, but allow that to just be something that you believe in your pretend imagination here that you can feel the importance of that law it was meant to be a helper to us what sounds legalistic was a helpful guide so we want to feel the cultural big dealness of picking up our mat on this particular day, even if it doesn't quite translate to us. And so when we back up and we look at what Jesus is doing here, we see a couple things all at once. Number one, this man, Jesus from Nazareth, heals with a word, bringing life into nothingness. He does so on the Sabbath. And we're imagining our deep cultural connections. This would be noticeable. And by the way, you guys, 38 years, dude was going to be there the next day. Jesus knew what he was doing. He picked to go and approach him on the Sabbath. And number three, he says, pick up your mat. Jesus knew the law. Jesus knew what he was saying, and he knew where he was in Jerusalem. He knew when it was, festival time. Jesus knew. We are no longer in nighttime conversations explaining things one-on-one -on -one with Nicodemus. We are no longer in servant quarters. We just went big and blew this thing out of the water. And so... When we feel that peace, let me do a quick run for us through the rest of this story, and then we're going to circle back a little bit. But we want to we see the whole sort of unfolding here of what happens. Okay, so people saw this, verse 10, and we're like, wait, 
what are you doing? You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. And the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who was this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. But later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Jesus was not known by the man during the healing. The man and Jesus didn't even have enough of an interaction afterwards to have an introduction happen. But Jesus did this healing and then went and found him again. Do you guys know how full the temple would have been? Feel the intentionality of this second approach that Jesus found the man again and says, stop sinning. Okay, this feels a little confusing, except when we look at the matching here that's happened. Jesus has already impacted the man's physical infirmity. infirmity. I'm reading a quote. I wouldn't have used that word because I can't say it apparently. Um, but, and now he's doing, so we've taken care of the physical needs. Now we're dealing with the spiritual condition of this person. This is language we sometimes use when we uh, see what Jesus is doing is elevating the conversation. I want you whole, not only physically, but spiritually as well. And the healed man goes back to the Jewish leaders and says, now I know who it was. I know now who did this. In verse 16, we see that because it was the Sabbath, now the Jewish leaders begin to persecute Jesus. Now, quick pause, link between physical illness or disability and sin, real quick. I don't think that we carry a big link between these two, but culturally, I just think it's important to say this, that it, there were beliefs among some that physical disability would be the consequence of a sin, either of the person or the parents, maybe a generation or two before. We actually see later on in John's gospel, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, Jesus heals a blind man and the disciples say, hey, is he blind because his own sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus was like, neither. Neither one of this is the case. So we aren't going to link that these two things are um, uh, a, a result. The, 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 the disability was the result of something sinful in this person's life. We also know, as the Jews very well knew, we all fall short of the grace and holiness of God. We all sin in thought or action or inaction. We all need a savior to bridge that gap between our non-holiness and God's holiness. The Jews were so aware of this because they lived in this ritual system of repeated purification and cleansing, and they could rest assured in their clean status because they were living in a system. Ironically, I think sometimes it's harder for us to even accept our own uh, uh, forgiven status because we don't have a system, so to speak, but we have a savior. That's a side note. I'm getting off track. But anyway, people knew that they were sinners. People knew they needed sacrifice and atonement to be made right with God. This was not an unknown thing. We don't know if there was something specific for this man or if that was a general statement, but the nature of the comment is not about what kind of sin it was. What it is, is Jesus speaking with authority to pronounce that judgment over him. The knowledge of him and the pronouncement is the ability to have the authority to do that judging, that stating of truth. And so we see um, 
that this statement, this statement is not to point us to a sin or to even link a sin to a disability, but instead it's Jesus speaking his own authority, using his own authority. Actually, interestingly, um, John does not include this one, but Mark's gospel includes this healing. Some of you may know the story, super quick. There was a, a paralytic man, and Jesus' reputation was getting really big, and he was having crowds follow him, and he was teaching, and this man's friends wanted him to be healed, so they took him on his mat to the house where Jesus was teaching. They couldn't even get in, so they busted the roof, and they, which would have been made of like hay and stuff. It was bustable. But still, it was like a big action to bust someone else's roof. And they drop him down. And what does Jesus say to this man? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And people around Jesus were like, what? You can't say that. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus responds in Mark 2, starting in 9, which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he turns and says to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Sound familiar? We're linking this authority to do the healing, to speak life into nothingness, and to judge sin and forgive it. We have a link. Here's what I think we are supposed to see. If I'm paraphrasing for Jesus at this point, I say it again. I am paraphrasing. I am taking a liberty outside of the gospel, but here's what I want us to see. I think that Jesus is saying for you to truly understand these signs, these miracles, these bending of nature's laws, right? For what they're actually pointing to. I need you to see beyond the, the miracle itself. I need you to see beyond the action of the healing, right? So if you just see the word of divine knowledge, Nathaniel who starts following him is all wowed because Jesus knew he was under a fig tree. He had divine knowledge. He's like, wow, you're the son of God. And Jesus is like, wow, if that's going to wow you, just you wait. But there's divine knowledge there. There's divine knowledge with this Samaritan woman and people come to believe. And now there's divine knowledge here. If you just see that, you will take me as a prophet. If you just see the healing, even if I wasn't physically there of that kid that was just in the chapter before or the this healing now. If you just see that, you will limit me to a miracle worker and you will not believe the fullness of what John is hoping us to believe, right? In uh, chapter 448, just further up the page, you see that. If you fall short of comprehending what the signs point to, I want you to see the fullness. I am doing the work of the Father. And the Father has entrusted me to judge. We are linking these things to link the level of authority and togetherness between Jesus, the Son, and the Father. And this was the thing that's blowing minds. We're going to go into what will be this next week's reading. And I'm going to grab a couple of them. Jesus goes on to explain to people what's happening here. He says, listen, my Father's always working to this very day, including the Sabbath. And so I, and I am too. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. There's just in a link, a togetherness. Remember, John has declared it in verse one. He was with God and was God. But we have to come to believe it in the stories. And these are the encounters where Jesus is pushing us to see a new truth. He says, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. He did that just twice with a word. Jesus is able to do that. He's pointing this out, this connectedness, and says also the father has entrusted all judgment to the son. That's why we're linking this statement about the sin no more, 
be clean, be whole, right? So we need some cultural empathy to feel the magnitude of this combination that Jesus is connecting here. As God is working to this very day, so am I. A translation uh, of this or another way to say this later, Matthew 12, 8, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. We have the benefit of being able to look at four gospel accounts and see these different ways that Jesus is teaching this. Like I am Lord even of the Sabbath. What does that mean? I'm Lord because (laughs) the day is a holy day meant to be set apart and kept holy unto God, right? The Lord, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am one with the Father. This is our holy day. I have authority over this very day. If it's false, it's major blasphemy. But when it is true, it is a game changer for the faithful people following Yahweh God. I give life to whom I give life. That's something that the Father would be able to say, like the Father. And I have authority given by the Father to judge and forgive. In this one little encounter with the man, Jesus has elevated the stakes exponentially beyond the healing itself. In John 1, starting in uh, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, and the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I feel like this is John making sure that we see, Jesus making sure that we don't stop at prophet, we don't stop at miracle worker. See the fullness of what I'm asking you to believe in. God is doing a new thing beyond prophet, beyond miracle worker. We have just encountered God's self, this man at the pool. We have no record of this man from here. We actually don't know. Did he say thank you? Did he go and tell all the world this big news? What was his motivation on going back and telling the leaders? Did he know that they were mad and tried to get on their good side by telling? Or was he just so excited he couldn't stop telling everybody about being healed? We have no idea. Did he come to believe and declare Jesus as Lord? We don't know anything. So what are we left with? We're left with the most important thing for us, I believe, which is the authority of Jesus that has just been fully made known authority over life, authority over sin and forgiveness. Don't just know the signs, know the fullness of what this is pointing to. In 524, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. So yes, divine knowledge, but beyond a prophet. Yes, healing, but beyond a miracle worker. It's about the authority of the father extended completely in unity with the son to give life with a word, have authority over the Sabbath and to judge fairly. And that's where the challenge of this story is for a deeper belief. But as we've said throughout, while we look at these stories, John likes to linger. He takes longer in the teaching and the stories and the encounters than some of our other gospel writers. And we want to linger too. 
And when I stop and actually spend a bit of time in a story that may be familiar, if I've read through the gospels more than once, I'm like, yep, I know that healing. That healing has to do with the authority because right afterwards, John starts into the teaching on authority. I know what that story is about. But I want us to linger. And as I was lingering just in the actual encounter this week, I was thinking, man, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Have you heard that saying before? Don't miss the forest for the trees. I think this story challenges me. Don't miss the healing for the mat. Now, I like to be somebody who defends the religious leaders and reminds us we can't put these people into the camp of the bad guys or something. Like they're trying so hard to follow the law. They're trying to lead people to do what is right and wrong. I want to defend them, but here I know it's, it's not what they expected. But when I read this, like a guy hasn't walked in 38 years and they're talking about his mat. I'm even frustrated with them here with all of my best empathy to remember what it is that they want to be about and to, to try to honor that, I still think like 38 years, guys, why are we talking about a mat? Like a yoga mat, right? Like we've got something bigger that we should be talking about here. And so what that means when I think, don't miss the healing for the mat, what I think about here is my own challenge when I think about the Sabbath. And that's where I want us to linger a little bit what I'm going to do, first of all, though, is I am going to make a gross assumption that I don't think is true, but I'm, we're going to just play along for this morning. We are going to pretend that every one of us so deeply identifies with Sabbath practice that it is part of our cultural identity. Now, I don't think that's true, so I'm going to do a slight aside to say this. Why is that? Why was it that for 40 years, myself at least, I took it as a completely optional, if I have time, wouldn't that be lovely, like a spa day? Why do we take that as like an optional aside? We take not murdering seriously. We take not carrying around idols seriously, even though we need to translate it to our old culture. We think it's a really good idea not to commit adultery. We work on that coveting thing, but we're willing to admit when we're doing it and say, I know I don't want to. The law says not to, but for some reason... This is like an optional day off if we're able to. I don't know. We have it all wrong. That's what I just want to say. Like, not only is this one of the top 10, it is so meant to be a part of our very functioning and flourishing of how we're meant to exist in our relationship with God and with one another. That as the 10 commandments, if they were in a list this way, like from one to 10, right in the middle between the stuff about God and the stuff about interacting with each other is where Sabbath is. It is the longest, the most ink of all the commandments is spilled on Sabbath, and we take it as an optional day off if our work week allows it. We just aren't understanding the fullness. Now, I think we're called to more. I myself mess up my Sabbath all the time. That's why I say practicing. And maybe it's just for myself, practicing the Sabbath, because I am not good at it but I try. And then I repractice the next week. And I think we're all called to hold a higher elevation of the importance of this as pivotal to how we are designed to flourish as humans with God and with one another. And the very things that make you say, you don't understand why I can't are the exact things that I get challenged with when I have to face them every time I'm trying to face Sabbath. 
practice Sabbath. So I encourage you guys to try. I brought a bunch of books from smarter people than me that talk about not only why, but how and the beauty and the call into it. And I want to encourage you to give it a try and to elevate it where it belongs in the top 10 of cultural identity of the people following after the way of God. So I'm going to pretend that those last 30 seconds were impactful enough that you guys are all totally sold on how important Sabbath is. Because now what I want to talk about is let's say we all have it so rooted in our cultural identity that this is an absolute. Like the Jewish people of the time who were encountering Jesus. It was so rooted in their cultural identity. Let's just pretend we're already all there for the sake of this next part. Because where I get challenged here is as a faithful observer of the Sabbath, which we all are now magically as a faithful observer I don't want to miss the healing for the mat and I think as Sabbath practicers we are challenged by what is happening here because here's what I want to say first of all Jesus never ever 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 broke a law of God ever Jesus doesn't break God's law he knows them all and he does not break them ever Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So whatever we see Jesus doing is a fulfillment of the law of God, not a breaking of it. And so we need to be challenged here and not miss the healing for the mat. So the healing, the mat, all of it is Jesus fulfilling the law of God. It's going beyond the letter to the heart of the law as we sometimes say. That goes back to some of those Matthew 5 teachings, right? I say not even don't commit adultery, but don't even look at someone with lust. I'm saying it's not just about murdering, it's don't even hold anger. I want to get beyond the letter to the heart. Something in this encounter gets beyond the letter of the law into the heart of the law. Something about healing on the Sabbath and instructing this man to grab his own dignity and autonomy to walk with his mat is a filling of a law, not a breaking it. And that's where I feel the challenge. Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let's not worry so much about the rules around it. Let's get to the heart. And what's at this heart? Acts of charity, acts of mercy, acts of justice, restoration towards another human is part of Sabbath design. And I personally can feel a little bit of a challenge with that while I am working so hard to frame my rule book to make a Sabbath possible. Does anyone else feel that? Okay, I'm doing something a little weird here because I was like, I wish I could come this morning with how to work this out. Instead, I'm gonna say, hey community, I'm really having a hard time working this one out. And let me give you an example of that. It's my darn phone. I am working to do this Sabbath thing. Everyone says, set aside the darn phone. But when I get a phone call yesterday, I practiced my Sabbath with varying degrees of success on Saturday. Saturday is my Sabbath. So yesterday, Forrest and I decided we wanted to learn how to knit socks for Sabbath. I don't know. That was just what we decided to do. So we got all of our stuff together and we're sitting there trying to, have you ever knit with four needles? Have you ever knit at all? Do it times like a thousand and you're, there's five needles involved and we're sitting there trying to do this. We get a phone call from this building that somebody's locked out of her room. I'm challenged because I know in my heart that everyone says, set down your phone and don't have it. But then what 
where's the, just the so low bar human kindness of allowing someone back into their bedroom? You know, like, how do you, how do I do this? The answer is, I'm not sure, you guys. I need help working it out. Because the truth is, when I open up my phone and see a notification that somebody's calling me, I sure the heck also read all my texts and see if there's a new email in there. Like, I don't know how to work this out. How do we work it out to do the preservation and the guardrails like the law was intended to do? Can I reheat the soup? How do we honor that guardrails help us practice Sabbath, but still say, but Sabbath is not just for us to have a spa day. Sabbath is for the flourishing of mankind and acts of charity and justice and doing something to promote the well-being of another is totally Sabbath law. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is totally within the heart of Sabbath. Somebody else being uh, made new, made whole. Like, yeah, that's totally within Sabbath keeping. In one of my books, Walter Brueggemann is the one who wrote Sabbath as Resistance. Um, He's got a great take on like, you know, fight the system. Um, That would be my mini quote. He says it way better. But like Sabbath is actually an act of resistance against all of our culture's messaging, right? But he says that worship that does not lead to neighborly compassion and justice cannot be faithful worship of Yahweh. The offer of that is a phony Sabbath. If I'm so guardrailed that I can't even know when someone has a need, then maybe I've restructured all the don't pick up your mat laws around that are meant to help me have boundaries to actually set aside a day. Like those things are good because I'm seriously struggling. I don't know how to do it. And the, the reason, the end of this has to be, it has to get to our heart. Remember in this scenario, we all are completely already practicing Sabbath as a mark of our cultural identity. How do we also be interruptible for the justice and mercy and kindness that it takes that demonstrates God's heart for the flourishing of others, even on our Sabbath. I'm going to confess something to you. A few weeks ago, it was just before Christmas. Christmas was on a Monday, right? So it was the Saturday before. It was December 23rd. I was both on vacation and practicing Sabbath when I got the call that it was time to go to Hinsdale and pick up one of the families residing here because their bus wouldn't come into the city like we were reading about in the news. And we're riding around Hinsdale, which already is an hour away. We're driving around trying to find them because they haven't been given very good information on where they even are. And I'm so entitled in my heart, you guys. I'm like, it is not only my vacation, it is my Sabbath. And I am driving an hour out and then 40 minutes minutes driving around and then an hour home and then setting up like in my heart I'm so Sabbath ugly and as soon as I heard my heart does that make sense when you like hear your own heart and you're like gross this is exactly what I should be doing on my Sabbath and we pull up to this train stop and there's all of these people who have been dropped randomly and someone else comes to the car to speak to the other people who are in the car with me. I do not speak Spanish. It's a problem. And th- th- we had a caseworker who does and they came up and they're like, where even are we? Is somebody coming? What should we do next? They knew nothing. And I was like, this is the only thing we all, this bus stop should be swarming with Sabbath keepers right now. And my heart was so gross and I was convicted before the Lord and I received grace and forgiveness, but I need to check my own Sabbath heart all the time to make sure that I'm seeing this. This isn't just a protective thing for me. How do I even know and act in to God's heart of compassion and justice right into my Sabbath? I don't know. I'm, this is one of those sermons where I'm like, hey, I've got a problem. Will you hold it with me? Can we work this one out together? 
grabbing a lot of the Old Testament references that the people involved in this story would have known. We know that Sabbath is like a, a hint, a memory of this creating and redeeming God who is now present to people. And Jesus is that. Jesus is that in the flesh. The word become flesh and dwelling among us. And so when Jesus does this action on the Sabbath, he's breaking nothing. He is living Sabbath relationship and perfection right here. The issue is relationship. How do we do this well together? He's taking this idea of rest, God's rest, and including restoration for others. And I'm just challenged with that today. And so that's what I wanted to bring to you. I want us to be people marked by Sabbath. I think some of my hardest interior work is done when I face myself on Saturdays in a quiet afternoon. There's such good stuff that needs to get wrestled through every week. It's beautiful. Let us be people of Sabbath justice. Let us be people of Sabbath compassion let us figure out what it looks like to be a both and and not have that become such a self-protective thing that we aren't looking for the restoration moments. And I don't know how to do that best. But I want to speak it here as Sabbath people so we can work on that together as our own ethos, as our own cultural identity as the people of God as a both and. Amen? Okay, we're going to work that out beyond this morning. So... Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for a time to gather and to be challenged. You never broke a law. Picking up the mat is within the law, and my mind needs to do a backbend that I'm not prepared to, to see how do I respond to your heart to honor this day and keep it holy, to have it be set apart for flourishing of humans with God and with one another. Yes, and to reflect your heart for compassion and justice and right relationship and restoration. And Jesus, we need your help. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. When we're gathered in the name of Jesus, we need you here because none of this gets worked out unless we're attuned to your speaking, your still small voice in our own hearts that can even tell us on a Saturday afternoon when our heart is gross. I thank you for that conviction. I thank you for the, um, the act of confession and restoration. Jesus, thank you that you have already given us the grace and redemption and forgiveness over all of it that we can stand here and talk about our ugly stuff with each other and before you and be honest and know that we still stand holy, righteous, and redeemed before the throne of the Father because of you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that, and we continue on to respond to just ask you, like, and how do we live this out? Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you guide us as we pray, that you honor those questions that we bring before you, and that the answers sometimes come in a still small voice and also can come through the working out of things in community. I thank you for this gathered people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.